0: Good morning, Mission View. We're going to continue on with our unlikely heroes. And so turning your Bibles to Hebrews 11, we'll be looking at one verse this morning. So I think everybody starts somewhere in terms of their career. And I know for myself, when I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, the Lord had me doing things that I didn't exactly uh, expect to be doing. This was 30 years ago, but one, upon graduation, you know, I was certainly hoping to get involved in a church and to be able to work full-time and apply myself to the Word of God. But uh, as soon as I graduated, that were, really wasn't the opportunity that He afforded me. See, co- coming from Moody Bible Institute, it was kind of this beautiful utopia Here we were in the center of Chicago, and we were surrounded by the best of the best. We were surrounded by the best teachers, the best students, Uh, so much talent was at Moody Bible Institute, and it was just an incredible experience. It wasn't uncommon to come out of your dorm room and for you to look at somebody praying over in the corner or somebody reading their Bible or somebody on the street sharing Christ with somebody that was lost. And so it was like this beautiful time in my life where I had the best of the best. And then I'm done, and I come back to Akron, Ohio, and the utopia was, in a sense, over. Well, I did get married, and that has been a 30-year utopia. But after I got married, we started seeking out, Lord, what door do we have for us to be able to, to minister and the first opportunity he gave us was to work with junior high students we got a part became a part of a church plant that met in a high school green high school at that time so I would say in the last thirty years half my time has been spent in a school building which is absolutely fine with me and it was a, a small church of about 100 people, and there was just a handful of junior high kids, and that was the opportunity that my wife and I had that was afforded us. And so we're like, you know what? This is going to require sacrifice. This is going to require commitment. So we'll find a job. I'll find a job outside the church, make my living there, and just wait for the door to open to pour myself full-time into youth ministry because by that time, that's what I felt Lord wanted me to do. And so the first job that became available, and this was my prayer, by the way, my prayer was, Lord, would you please provide a job that will develop my character as a pastor? Now, I didn't realize the route the Lord would take me through. The first opportunity I had was to work at at an irrigation company, which was more like construction. Our neighbor had started this business and said, Steve, why don't you come over and, and join us? We'd love for you to be a part of what we do. Now I want you to know that this was kind of like a more like a construction company. My day started at 7, 7.30 in the morning, and it didn't end till 7 or 7.30 at night, sometimes even longer. And so those days of getting up and saturating my mind for an hour or two with the God's word and studying all my books for all my classes, that was over. Being spoon-fed doctrine, that was over. No, my little utopia was out the window. Now I was in the middle of blue-collar America, and I want you to know this schoolboy image really didn't fit in here. I felt so out of place. I would go to the go to the shop in the morning, and you'd had WMMS that's blaring in the background. And you would go to the trucks and get all the tools on your trucks, and they were filthy, and inside of it it was filthy, and there was even filthy things in there. There was like pinups of Playboys in in the, in the trucks. And it was an environment that was just crazy to me. So foreign. Most of the guys were dr- just downing black coffee because their eyes were all red. And, sh- uh, and, and you could tell something happened the night before. And I learned very quick they were working off the party from the night before. And so here I was in the middle of this. And I'm like, okay, Lord, Is this really where you want to teach me the the qualities of being a pastor? I actually felt very alone. I didn't drop F-bombs like they did. I didn't smoke like they did. I didn't do doobies like they did. And I didn't speak the fluent language of sexual innuendos. I was alone. I felt stranded. And I'm like, Lord, where are you in this? I'm in the midst of this corruption, and what am I to do with it? I don't know if you've ever felt that way in your job. I don't know if you've ever felt like you were at a place where you, know, you just didn't fit in, and the, 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 the place that you worked and the people that you were around didn't reflect your values, didn't reflect uh, your desires, didn't reflect the, the practices of your life. But I want you to know God taught me something incredibly valuable. He taught me a lesson of what many of the people in my congregation would be going through and would be subjected to. And that was probably one of the biggest lessons that I needed to learn that God wanted to develop my character as a pastor. Here's the other thing he taught me. He taught me you have to make a choice in everyday life. Will you live with a distinct faith or not? Because I could have blended in. I could have just merged with the culture that was there in the office. Or I could deliberately choose that I was going to live and love like Jesus. And let me tell you, I don't believe it's hard to have a witness in a workplace It's not difficult at all if you make the choice that you're going to live and love like Jesus because there will be a stark contrast between you and everybody else. And it's not that you will be better than anybody else. It's just that you will be different because of the values and because of the the, the things that you hold on to. And I learned that. Today we're going to talk about having a distinct faith. And I think that this is so vitally important because if you and I are to have a circle of responsibility, a core, and people that we are going to minister to, we need to have a distinct faith. And I don't think there's anybody better to teach us this lesson than the person of, of Noah. Noah is going to teach us. He's the third person in terms of this unlikely hero that we're going to look at today. And so in your Bibles, Hebrews 11:7, we only have one verse. It's so simple that we're going to go through, but we are going to refer back to Genesis 6. So if you mark that part in your Bible, let's pray that God would work in our hearts. dearly Father, I pray that as we look at your word, that you would so motivate us and help us to understand what it is that you want of us. I pray, Father, that you would guide us, that you would direct us, Help us to be a people that live a distinct faith. And I pray that you would help us to do that with all of our hearts. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing we're going to look at is uh, Hebrews eleven seven. It says this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. God had told him there was going to be a flood. It was something that was to happen. It was unseen. It was something that happened in the future. He says, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I want us to learn a few things from Noah's life. And the first thing comes from the first three verses of this, three words of this verse. By faith, Noah. I hope that that's what God can say of each of us by faith, John, by faith, Sue, by faith, that God would recognize that we are a people of faith. Now, Noah, I want you to understand the profile. I want you to understand what he was, why God would say he was a person of faith. We're going to see in his profile that he was a righteous man, but I want you to see three C's. First of all, the culture that Noah found himself in. Now, we'll see this as we go back to Genesis 6. But just know right now, if you were to read all the chapters leading up to the flood, you will realize that there was a culture of corruption in that day. There was a culture of corruption. Now, I know that every generation feels like their corruption of their day is worse than anybody else's. We get into this mode of thinking, oh, Jesus is definitely coming back soon. He's definitely coming back because it is so bad today. I want you to know I said that in the 70s. I said that in the 80s when there was 88 reasons why Jesus was going to return. I said it in 90s. I said it in 2000, 2010, I say it today. It feels that way. We kind of get into this one-up on the culture of corruption, and we feel that. But I want you to know that this really was a bad culture. This is what it says in Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, in the earth and that every intention get that every intention of the thoughts of his heart man's heart was only evil continually it was like God is making this emphatically clear only only evil continuously there was no let up now I find it interesting what led up to this culture of corruption and if you were to read Genesis 4, 5, and 6, you could make the same observations that I'm going to make. I'm going to give you two observations of things that were present to create this culture of corruption. Number one was a lack of faith, and number two was the presence of evil seen in spiritual warfare. The absence of faith was seen in this. It was the, the fact that there were no godly men, no God-fearing people that had faith in the Lord. Remember last week when we talked about Enoch, I read the genealogies or talked about the genealogies between Adam and Noah. And there was 10 sets of genealogies that were there. Enoch was the only person that was recognized at all for having faith. And what kind of faith did he have? What did he do? He walked with God. This is what the scripture says, that he walked faithfully with God. Now, Enoch lived in the culture of corruption because we saw in Jude that he preached against the ungodliness. But I sense that he knew that there was going to be some kind of pending disaster on all humanity. You know how I know that? Because he named his son Methuselah. Methuselah. Well, that doesn't mean anything to you and I except when you look at it in its original language, and the literal translation of Methuselah is this, when he is dead, it will come. Can you name, imagine naming your kid? Hey, when it's dead, it will come. Come here. That's the name of Methuselah. When, it, when he is dead, Methuselah is dead, it will come. Now, if you look at the genealogies and the timeline, you will see that Methuselah was the great-grandfather of Noah, and he lives right up to the time of the flood. Now, it is possible that the flood itself claimed Methuselah's life because there's no evidence that he was necessarily a man of faith. Now, church, there was a drought at that time of faith, and yeah, we might even say there's a drought of faith in our environment as well. Church, here's, this is what this speaks to. This speaks to the fact that God always uses people of faith to counter the culture of corruption. Let that sink in. Because sometimes we think, do I really matter? Does my presence really matter in the workplace? Does it really matter that I'm a part of the community? Does it really matter that I am physically there, that I am representing? God always uses faith to counter a culture of corruption. Here's a formula. When there's no faith, there's a much corruption. When there is great faith, cr- corruption is on the decrease, and we see that. So is your presence needed in the community? Is your presence needed in the workplace? Absolutely it is needed. So we see the absence of faith, but we also see the presence of evil. Now at this time, in the time of Noah, there was a presence of a demonic presence that was involved in this culture. I think it behooves us to understand what perpetuates this kind of culture of corruption. Friends, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that, oh, corruption just happens. There is a spiritual world that is at work in even our environment today. If God were to open up our eyes and unmask us to all the spiritual warfare that is going on around us, I think it would scare us silly. We would not know how to handle that so God doesn't allow us to see the spiritual world that is going on. And at this time, there was a spiritual presence of darkness In Genesis chapter 6, we had learned, and we talked about this when we went through 1 Peter 3, that there was an angelic being that had had cohabitated with human beings. I believe there was some kind of treaty or some kind of agreement that was made, and I think that humans were in pursuit of eternal life. They wanted to have immortality. They wanted to be able to do that, and so they struck this deal. Now, due to the human uh, arrogance, God says, no, I will take care of that. Your lifespan will no longer exceed 120 years. So there was a presence of evil. There was also the, 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 the people called the Nephilim that were on the earth at this time. Some believe that this is the people group that came as a result of the, the angels and the man cohabitating. I tend to lean that direction. And some say, no, it's just another presence of evil. Either way, there was so much evil and corruption in that day. This is what God said. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Genesis 6 and look at verse 6. Genesis 6, verse 6, or it's on the screen. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So this is the culture in which Noah found himself. But what's interesting is that not only was there a culture, but there was also a person of character. God had Noah. Take a look at Genesis 6, verse 8. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, kind of like Enoch. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So here we see Noah being a righteous man. He was a person of faith. He was a person that was of faith and was faithful to God because it says not only in chapter 6 but also in chapter 7 that Noah did everything just as God said. Remember, that's what faith is. Faith is believing that if God says it, I'm going to do it. I will follow whatever God says in his command. And God had given commands to Noah, and he listened to it. Now, it's worth mentioning that Noah was alone at this time. He did have his wife, and his wife was a great partner. And I don't believe his kids were yet born until after the calling. So he felt alone in the world. But then God did give him a calling, and we see that in verse 11. Take a look at Genesis 6, verse 11. He says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Notice how God uses the word corrupt often. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their ways on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then he goes on and gives instruction on this boat. Now what I find amazing here is in the midst of God being upset, in the midst of God being uh, grieved by the sins of mankind, that we see grace we see grace. Did you see it? In the midst of wanting to destroy the world, God says, but make a what? An ark. A vehicle of rescue. Make an ark. See, this speaks to the heart of God See, I believe that God wanted a way of escape for sinful man even though he knew that none of the sinful men of that day would be willing to get upon that ark. He knew that they would reject his kindness, yet God provided that kindness. And what we see in here is God's love for his creation. We see grace in the Old Testament. We see grace in the New Testament. And ultimately, the best act of grace that God did was ultimately in the cross of Christ. in the fact that he laid his life down for mankind for that cross to be the vehicle of rescue. My friends, God has always provided a vehicle of rescue for mankind. But mankind, due to the hardness of heart, has rejected time and time and time again the grace of God. Now, this is what I see in Noah in carrying out his calling. It was truly a venture of faith. Let's understand the context a little bit. First of all, Noah lived in a place where there was no water, there was no water. Mesopotamia was not known for its ocean views or its pristine lakes. Now think of it. He's been asked to build a barge in the middle of the desert. That's where they lived. It was in the middle of a desert. Now according to Genesis 2 verses 5 and 6, it's very likely that the people of this day had not known rain the way that we would have known rain. There's evidence that there was kind of a greenhouse effect before the flood in which the plants were getting nourished. Because Genesis 7:11 says that God opened up the floodgates of the heavens and the springs below in order to flood the earth. Number two, Noah had no experience. There's nothing on his resume that would say that Noah was really qualified for the task that was at hand before him. Think about the monstrosity of this project. It would have required an engineering abilities definitely. It would have required car- carpentry skills, zoology knowledge, husbandry expertise, and social work all wrapped into one. This was too much for one man. It was an impossibility. But that's what God does. He does the impossible with feeble people like you and I so that he is glorified because people would say only God could get the glory. Here's the third thing we realize is that Noah had no help. It would have taken over 100 men to be able to accomplish this, but he had his wife. And he had his kids and their spouses. So there was eight people on his work crew eventually when the boat actually started getting on underway. Now, what they did have is time. God gave them about, it's estimated somewhere between 80 and 120 years for him to complete this project. So he did have some time on his hands. Now this is the context. This is all Noah by faith. Let's look a little bit further in seeing the obedience now of Noah in Hebrews eleven seven. Here's the next phrase. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his family. Now what we're going to see in his obedience, we will see the faithful obedience of Noah here in the task that God gave him. There's three things about the task. Number one, it was a sacred task. Do you see the word that he used? In reverent fear, he constructed an ark. See, that word reverent fear is really a, a word for worship. It's really a meaning of worship. In worship, he constructed the ark. See, This is what Noah knew. Noah knew that God stood at one time at the edge of darkness and he just spoke the word and the world came into being. And if God could just speak and the world came into being, he could just speak at the edge of creation and say it must be done away with. He understood Where he was in the order of creation. There's God, there's man. And we submit ourselves, everybody, to to God. That's the order. And so in reverent fear. And so what Noah teaches us by his actions is that his work was a sacred task for God. Do you realize that the work that God has given you is a sacred task? Now, he knew it was a sacred task in the midst of pending global calamity. But he wants us to understand that we have a sacred task as well. Now, in order for Noah to follow the blueprints in Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 to 21, we're not going to look at the description of what God told him. There's a few things that would have had to have been true. Number one, Noah would have had to pay full attention to details. This is how he did in his work. This is instruction for us in our work. We should pay attention to details. Can you imagine Noah saying, you know what, go for wood? I don't like that. Let's go with iron wood instead. No, he paid attention to the exact details of God and didn't try to do it his own way, which is our tendency, isn't it? We try to do things our own way. Here's a second thing that would have been true. He had to be faithful in working with the little help that he had. You don't tick off your family and say, you know what, I don't need you. I can do this all by myself. He didn't do that at all. He worked faithfully with his family. Third, he had to faithfully depend on the strength that God provided. I would imagine there were days that he got up and said, "Oh." I can't move a muscle. I am so sore. God, can I I'm just go hit snooze a couple more times? I just—he depended on the strength of God because he needed to carry out this task. And finally, he was faithful. He faithfully made use of every opportunity. Do you realize? Second Peter gives us insight here. Second Peter chapter two verse five says that Noah was a preacher of what? Anybody know? A preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. Now, I want you to think about the context here. Think, think about this. A guy is building a boat in the middle of the desert with no water around. I can see the Mesopotamian times saying a crazy man is building the boat, a boat in a very big boat in the desert. Naturally, people would have gone out to see the freak show. They would have gone out, and they would have probably mocked. They would have probably jeered at him. And what did Noah do? Did he get dejected? Did he, did he get feelings hurt because of this? No, no. Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. He used his captive audience to be able to tell people, there is judgment coming. There is something coming, and you need to repent and believe in God. Now, Jesus gives us insight into the mindset of the people during Noah's time. It says that this, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, the people before the flood were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered into the ark. Every day his life is normal, man. This guy's a nut, but I'm just having fun. I'm enjoying the party. We're going to get married. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to build our home. We're going to have our life together. We're just it's, life is beautiful. But then the flood came. Friends, we learned something about our sacred task that God has given us. There is a pending judgment that's coming on our society. And people are going on without with life as normal. And we think that everything is going to be great. But there is a day of reckoning that we will have before God. And what we are to do in our work is we're to pay attention to the details. We're to work alongside of the people that God has put in our path. We are to do it with excellence and with the strength that God provides. But you know what else we're supposed to do? We are supposed to take advantage of every opportunity that God has given us. We worship God by showing the uniqueness and the giftedness that God has given us in the workplace. But we show the grace of God by using our workplace as a platform for telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why I say pray for your core, your circle of responsibility. Think about the people that are in your life, in your rhythm of life, that you can have an influence This is your platform. This is the sacred task that we have. Noah had a sacred task. Here's the second thing we learned. It was an enormous task. Think about this. If you turn the cubits into feet, you realize that this boat was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. It was 45 feet high. It was half the length of what the Titanic would have been, or what the Titanic was. This boat had three decks. It had one window, and it had one door. Now, I can imagine what the discussion was like between Noah and Mrs. Noah when all this took place. I could see Mrs. Noah thinking, how in the world are we going to get all the materials for this? Noah, do you realize how much this is going to cost? I mean, this is going to be outrageous. Where are we going to get those kind of resources to be able to do that? I mean, how are we going to raise our kids and build a boat and be ridiculed all at the same time? Now, maybe Mrs. Noah wasn't uh, on the lippy side, okay? Not saying that all wives are lippy, not at all. But it could have been, it could have been, but I would imagine Noah's reply would have been, God's going to supply. He's going to supply our needs. He's going to take care of us. Friends, when we walk by faith, do you realize that God will do that for you? And it may be that God is asking some of you to do something monumental for God. Maybe it's to raise a family of missionaries. I don't know. Maybe it's to start a ministry or to be a part of a ministry like Vicki Feifold in ICU. Maybe it's to to help rid the world of the exploitation of, of sex slavery in the world. Maybe it's something small. I don't know. Maybe it's to help plant a church. And some of you, I am so grateful for those that were on the initiation of Mission View and for everybody else that's joined in. It's not an easy task. But every time God gives us a monumental task, He always, always, always supplies what we need. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God, my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, church? God will supply all of your needs. But here's the other thing about the task. It was a salvation task. Do you see what it said in Hebrews eleven seven? 7? He says, construct an ark for the saving of your what? Your household. See, this last part of the task was probably the most important. It was the punchline of this entire scenario, the salvation of man. I believe the door was open for all humanity, but in this case, all humanity rejected God, all except for Noah's family. Now, I want you to know, Noah's boys and his daughter-in-laws, they could have rejected them. They could have joined in on the chorus of all those that were chanting out about Noah being a nut. They could have done that. But they stuck close to their father. Somehow their father and mother led them to a place of safety. Dads, it is your job to lead your family to a place of safety. Hear me now. Dads. It is your job, it falls squarely upon our shoulders to lead our families to a place of safety. It is not a job that we can procrastinate on. It is not a job that we can fall asleep at the wheel on. It is not a job that we can delegate it out or subcontract it out to the to your wife, to the youth pastor, to the young life leader. It is not something that we can do. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have a team. I can't. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a good job. But many dads are so busy at making the money in the household, they've just in their mind subcontracted all out and said it's your responsibility the problem is God never took it off of your shoulders so you can't do it yourself you will still be held accountable for how you lead your family and men, this is why we're doing this Men of Iron. This is why we do Ladies the If Tables. Because we want to see godly men and women develop in this ministry. People that will be mentored. People that will be have protégés. And it's so neat to even see some of the stuff that's happening out of the If Tables. And I'm encouraged by some of the relationships and even mentor relationships that are developing. But why do we do it? Because of this. It is our job to always, always lead our families to a place of safety. We quote often Proverbs 22, but let it sink in. Proverbs 22:6. 6. It is our job to train up our children in the way that they should go. Now, is this a guarantee that our children won't go off and not follow Christ for a time being? No, it doesn't mean that at all. There's not a guarantee here, but it does say this in the passage, but and when he is old, he will not turn from it. See, this is a general truth in this Proverbs that says that this journey for our children is not over. There's two things I want to encourage you from this verse. First of all, believe the encouragement of the Scripture here, that we are to actively, actively train our children. It means that we don't just It happens by chance. It is something that we do intentionally. Now, as a church, we want to help you. This is why we focus. So I have Kelly and an excellent team of people that pour into your kids every single week because we want to come alongside of you in the development of your kids. This is why we've hired a youth pastor. This is why Adam Swing is here. This is why Hannah Baldridge is investing into your teenage kids. Why? Because we want to use this to supplement what you are already teaching in the home. But we will never be a replacement for your presence in the life of your kids. We'll never be a replacement. But here's the second thing we learned from this. If our kids don't walk with God, don't give up. Don't you dare. Don't you dare give up. Because I know that there are people here that you have adult children that are currently not walking with God. And the truth of this verse is saying, don't give up. Trust me, I will work in the hearts of your kids. This is what we are to do. This is what Noah's task was. And it's what our task is. Let me conclude with this. The last phrase says, it indicates Noah's righteousness. It says this, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. There's two realities here that we may not like. The first reality is a judgment, and the one reality that we do like is inheritance. He basically says, by Noah's actions, he condemned the world. Through Noah, he led to seeing the world basically die by flood. Now, nobody likes the thought of all humanity being killed. I don't like the thought of an animal animal being killed. How many of you, when Sarah McLachlan starts singing In the Arms of an Angel and you start seeing shivering animals on TV, you're like, okay, I'll pay $19.99 a month. I mean, you, you just don't want that to happen to animals. But we wouldn't want it to happen to humans either. And I don't think God does either. But here's the deal. Remember, God provided a boat. God provided a boat, but God did not mandate belief. He did not mandate belief. If we don't take the rescue boat, the outcome is not going to be pretty. I believe that this is a true story. But I also believe it is a picture of the ultimate boat in the cross of Christ that God has for us. And the fact is, God wants us to place our 100% commitment on Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the only vehicle of rescue. Jesus made it very clear. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you get that? There's only one way. There's only one boat. There's only one vehicle of rescue, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's not through Islam. It's not through Buddhism. It's not through every other religion in the world. You say, well, isn't God an all-inclusive God? No, he's not. He is all-inclusive in that he has allowed every single person to come to faith through the one boat that he has provided. We see the, the execution of humanity in the flood. And there will be a day of execution of humanity that chooses to reject God. God being a loving God says, it's your choice. But this is the vehicle. And it is a harsh reality that we don't like. I've heard people say, I can't believe in a God who would send people away into hell. But he's a holy God. He's a holy God. And this holy God is like, I've provided the way. The way is through my son. I did this lovingly. I did it sacrificially. It was my son I put on the cross. But I did it for you. But this is the only way that it's going to happen. There's a reality of judgment here. But there's also a reality of inheritance. And this is the good news. Those that were willing to get into the boat experienced a new world. And this is the case of Noah and his family, literally. And it's the case with us spiritually in believing on Christ. Jesus said, I came to give life. I've come to give it abundantly. Have you experienced that abundant life? And if you are, is your faith distinct enough that you are representing him? When I close, uh, I want to close out just going back to my story. Working with Narragon's irrigation company, I, uh, I went through this wrestling of me fitting in. And finally, God started speaking to me. I started having my quiet times in the Gospels and I started seeing how Jesus reached out to those that harassed and helpless and those that were, that, that were just lost. And I made it my goal, my prayer was that God would allow me to speak Christ to every single co-worker that I had. And God answered that prayer. I'm not saying I was the great evangelist of an Aragon Irrigation. I want you to know I had so many conversations about spiritual things, and I realized that people have some really whacked-out beliefs, really whacked-out beliefs, especially when they're coming off of being high. You just don't know if they really understood what they were saying. But before the job, going to the job, on the job, after the job, and eventually a couple guys said, Hey, I'd like to study the Bible. I didn't ask for it. They did. And so we started studying the Bible afterwards. One of the guys, I think, indicated he wanted to give his life to Christ but then quit. I have no idea where he is. Here's what I believe God was teaching me and all that. Be faithful in the world that you're in. Be distinct. I will have the I'll be in charge of the results, but be faithful. Today, as we close with the song, Give Me Faith, I want us to think about this as a song of dedication to God. Maybe you would say, give me faith, the Lord, to be a dad who is a spiritual leader. Maybe you would say, give me faith to use my job as a platform for Christ. Maybe you would say, give me faith to trust Christ for something monumental. Whatever it is, let's use it as a song of dedication.